The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Just the same, Father. Yeah, good to see you. That's yes, good. you too. Blessed Holy Week to you, Father. Well, thank you. I wish you the same and all of our viewers, too. Yes, absolutely. Father, we have uh, lots of emails tonight, uh, also a few current events as well, so let's jump right in. There's a question that we've had for many, many months now, but uh, definitely a very good <clears throat> question, very worthy of uh, covering this topic of canonizations. Father, in particular, this viewer asks if canonizations are uh, considered infallible. He references a, uh, a book that came out some some time ago addressing this this question and uh, he says that the uh, he calls them the recognize and resist camp of would-be traditionalists they uh, kind of I guess cling to this this idea that canonizations are not infallible uh, not necessarily infallible and so he says that this position was the extreme minority position before Vatican II and one that was held in disrepute, but uh, these recognize and resist groups are clinging to this due to the obvious problems that arise from canonizing obvious heretics like John Paul II and modernists like John XXIII. Uh, he says, uh, in the past, some of the recognize and resist types who have written on this topic have resorted to using modernist arguments like the quote-unquote uncanonizations of saints from before Trent, such as the much-derided case of uncanonizing St. Philomena, which you have discussed before, Father. Um, so, Father, he says that you've mentioned before those uh, pre-catechism, those pre-Trent saints, Council of Trent saints, would be considered saints through the ordinary magisterium of the Church, that the ordinary magisterium would be considered infallible. But could you um, shed any light on this matter, Father, of canonizations? Are they generally considered infallible? What is the criteria to make them infallible? How do we answer this question? Well, actually, I think the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia, 1907, 1913, the older, obviously, the, the pre-Vatican II Catholic Encyclopedia, answered the question fairly well. There's an excellent entry in that uh, early 1900 Catholic Encyclopedia which talks about canonization. It's under the heading of canonization and gives you a history of the process and the very notion of canonization. And uh, it does address the question of whether the Catholic Church considers canonizations to be uh, uh, infallible statements of the Church. And uh, it, would bears, it bears out what this writer says here. This questioner uh, does say that the school of thought that held that canonization is not an infallible statement was a, a, a very small minority and generally uh, looked regarded with a certain amount of um, what should I say caution <laughs> by the rest uh, the vast majority of um, theologians um, 
regarded the canonization process as uh, being infallible, not the process, but the statement, the actual uh, proclamation of um, the sanctity of someone, the result of the canonization process, a statement of authority by the church that a certain saint had heroic virtue, died in the state of grace, and was even then in the beatific vision in heaven. Uh, that that was an infallible statement of the church. The thought behind it is very simple. If the church is going to be able to tell you uh, what you must do in order to save your soul, and argue what you must do to, to enter the kingdom of heaven at eternity, uh, the church also has the power to judge as to who, in fact, lived those standards. To hold them up as examples, not only as examples, but also as intercessors in heaven that we should address. And uh, the idea that the church could hold up an example as an example of heroic sanctity, somebody who was not at all, possibly not even living, not even dying in the state of grace, possibly someone whose soul was condemned to hell because they died in mortal sin. The idea that the church could hold someone like that up as an example, a model of heroic sanctity, and even have the Catholic people um, honoring that soul here on earth by uh, praying for their intercession, asking them to pray for us in heaven, um, even perhaps being ad added to the universal calendar so that the entire church would have, let's say, a feast day honoring that saint's holiness when that is not the case at all. The whole idea was preposterous. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly, if that were the case, it would be more than a blemish on the church's uh, um, you know, magisterial authority. But one can see why the case of the post-Vatican uh, II um, popes of the New Order, because they are popes of a new order, why they would raise some serious questions, because there, there are people who are uh, bound to uh, defend the legitimacy of the, the reality of their papacy, and yet, at the same time, to explain how they could canonize rogues, you know, those who clearly were not uh, of heroic sanctity, did not leave lives of heroic sanctity, in fact, uh, did enormous damage to the church because of their modernism. And, um, and in fact, uh, you know, the Novus Oral Popes have canonized uh, people who have been found to be actually very, uh, well, quite, quite wicked and dissolute in their lives. Uh, so quite the opposite of those who are living lives of heroic, heroic virtue. They have to explain that somehow, and the only way they can get around, uh, well, what's the alternative? If you have a, a pope, a vicar of Christ on earth, who uses magisterial authority to declare someone a saint in heaven, who actually was an exemplary uh, keeper of the, the, uh, the laws of God in the church, who lived a life of heroic sanctity and so on, and they declare this person such, and that they are an intercessor in heaven, they, they deserve to be given uh, dulia, a certain um, veneration and reverence for that closeness of, to God. And then you find demonstrably they are not what they were portrayed to be by the magisterial authority of the church. What could more fiercely undermine confidence in the magisterial authority of the Catholic Church than that? And essentially bring it to, to naught, you know. <laughs> Um, so they are either going to have to say, well, this person um, obviously 
in giving us this this alleged infallible statement here, arid, and therefore he could not have been using the uh, magisterial authority, authority of the church. He could not have been speaking for Christ. Now they can say, maybe in this instance, he could not have been doing so. But I mean, you see, this calls into question the legitimacy of the papacy of someone who would speak like that. And even if they admitted one case of someone canonizing, someone who was really not a saint, right? And um, even if they admitted one case like that, it would call into question all their other uh, claims to use magisterial, uh, magisterial authority to you know, claim anything, to impose anything, to define anything. And so um, what they have to do now, uh, rather than that, call into question, let's say, the authority of Francis, right? Um, they have to say, well, it doesn't count because it, it wasn't infallible anyway. And as long as it's not something that is guaranteed by the church's infallibility or by papal infallibility, then it, it doesn't really count. It doesn't, it's not an argument against his being a true pope. So in order to salvage uh, the would-be papacy of Francis, they're willing to basically, I'm sorry to use the word, but they're basically trash the magisterial authority of the church with regard to canonizations. But if one reads the encyclical, uh, I'm sorry, if one re reads the encyclopedia, uh, the Catholic encyclopedia on the subject of canonization, one sees what the traditional teaching of the church was. Something that in the De Ecclesia manuals that we had in the seminary going back, uh, you know, many, many years to very sound um, dogmatic theologians. This manual has made it very clear that the uh, general, you might say the common sentencia, the common position of theologians was that the uh, canonization of a saint uh, was actually a, a, a proclamation, a decree of uh, infallible magisterial authority. And one can have the, the certitude of faith that this person is in heaven. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's tragic, but um, unfortunately, in trying desperately to somehow avoid even raising the question, or at least to throttle the question concerning, let's say, in particular, Francis's papacy, uh, people are actually going to redefine the papacy. They're going to redefine the papacy according to Francis. They're going to let Francis now be the standard of what a pope can be and what he can't be. And so if Francis is going to canonize a, a number of rogues who are manifestly not, the Catholic Church's concept of what a saint has to be, <clears throat> rather than... Um, say that calls into question whether or not he's speaking as the Pope, as a Pope, they will rather change the definition of the papacy and its powers to accommodate him and do violence to the church's faith and the papacy rather than face reality about him. And that's, it's sad. He's actually getting the, the, you, I, I would, I call them the trinos again, those who would be traditional Catholics, who are so desperate to, uh, to crush any question of the papacy of Francis, um, 
that they are they are actually willing to alter the church's faith in the papacy uh, in order to accommodate Francis. And this is exactly what Francis needs. This is what, this is what the modernists want them to do. They're playing right into the hand of the modernists in adjusting their faith in order to make room for Francis being a... Well, he doesn't... He did away with the title Vicar of Christ on earth. He, he personally uh, nixed that title. You know that. So anyway, uh, but this is the problem with those who insist that Francis must be the Pope no matter what, no matter what he does. Uh, they will find a way to somehow minimize it and dismiss it in order to absolutely avoid uh, any questions and then sneer at those who raise the questions, which is uh, tragic, right? Mm -hmm. Father, what do you think about the position uh, which says that... Uh, doesn't really even address the, the question of the legitimacy of the papacy, but rather just simply says that uh, the process of the canonization has so been altered as to render them not infallible, just because the, you know, the requirement for the, the miracles that had to be uh, investigated and attributed to the, to the prospective saint, that requirement has been totally done away with, and so now we can essentially just totally done away with. So now we can just say that, you know, this process is kind of all messed up, and so these canonizations, therefore, cannot be infallible. Who changed the process? And by what authority yeah. did that person change the process? It's the post-conciliar popes of the new order. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who changed the process, and they're the ones who now are in control of the process and yield their for false saints, you know. Mm -hmm. So it, it all returns to the same problem. I mean, again, people are desperately trying to squirm any way they can to avoid yeah. facing the reality that they've adulterated the whole idea of canonization and what it is to be a saint. Yeah, it's not what the Catholic Church has always taught. They've, they've yeah. deviated from that. They've redefined, uh, they've redefined sanctity, right, according to the world. And now the would-be traditional Catholics, the conservative Novus Ordos and so on, and even the, those who are going to the traditional Mass only, but still insist that no matter what, Francis must be the Pope. You must never question that. Just as they, the Novus Ordo Popes, or the Popes of the Novus Ordo, the New Order, have redefined canonization and sanctity, so these would-be traditional Catholics are willing to redefine the papacy in order to accommodate the new definition of canonization yeah. and sanctity. Yeah. And so uh, it's, it's a corrupt process from beginning to end. And I, I wish uh, those who want so desperately to be faithful to the church and be really true traditional Catholics would stop playing this modernist game because they're playing a game with the modernists and doing this. And it's a very deadly game and they will lose if they're going to play by the modernist rules. And uh, those who are going along with this whole question, you know, that's it, no matter what, what comes up, what Francis attacks, they have to say, well, that doesn't really count because of this, or that doesn't really count because of that. That's exactly what the modernists want them to say. Everything yields to the modernist uh, changes. Um, and those who are going along by saying, well, you know, it doesn't really change anything that they say that, because that wasn't really infallible anyway. They're playing right into the modernist sense, yeah. getting right into their net. Okay. Okay, well, another <clears throat> email. Uh, we had a viewer ask about uh, Sister Lucia, a topic that we have uh, covered before, but she asked Father if you 
if you believe that uh, the, the real sister Lucia was replaced by an imposter uh, from the Novus Ordo, what do you think actually happened to the real sister Lucia? Uh, but she also asked an interesting question uh, in regards to Pope Pius XI. She says the uh, lack of the true consecration uh, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary that he did not perform. She says, could the argument be made that he, Pope Pius XI, is he responsible for the infiltration of communism in the church in Vatican II? If he had done what heaven asked, would there even have been a Vatican II, in your opinion? And what about all of the sins as a result of communism spreading throughout the world? Does Pius XI bear any responsibility for that? Well, with regard to Sister Lucia, um, actually, uh, I was never one to go in for the, 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 the plastic ear <laughs> theory of uh, Paul VI. That he's truly, he was truly a conservative Catholic Pope, and he was basically uh, cast into a dungeon in the Vatican, and some uh, doppelgangers, some, some uh, what do you say, uh, double was put in his place. I, that, again, you know, that's grasping for straws. Uh, Paul VI was a radical from the beginning. He was known to be a radical uh, when he was simply a Monsignor, right? So uh, one does not have to uh, replace him with a body double to get a modernist radical leftist out of Paul VI. But uh, with regard to Sister Lucia, as peculiar as it may sound, I think they have a good point. I think there is a, I think there's a very good point. There have been forensic studies done even on bone structure and so on of the face. And um, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that the Sister Lucia, who was presented to the world over the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years of her life, uh, was not really the Lucia who had the visions of Our Lady of Fatima. Um, there are various um, uh, people who have actually devoted much of their life to studying that question. Um, why is it important? Well, because the modernists are into deception. They're all about deception, like communists. And uh, they might have said, well, if we can, if, if Lucia dies, then we don't have to deal with her testimony anymore. <clears throat> and uh, if Lucia were to come out, if she were alive, and to denounce Vatican II and condemn the modernist changes, they would uh, have a formidable adversary, right? Uh, so they would have to silence her somehow. But it would be much more advantageous for them to substitute a Lucia for the real Lucia, one who was very pliable and would go along <clears throat> with the new order of things and would appear to give her endorsement to it. So <clears throat> it is not beyond the, the modernists to do something like that if they thought they could pull it off. And uh, I, think, uh, I think there's a good case that that's exactly what they've done. Uh, they tried to use Padre Pio the same way. They tried to, uh, you know, portray him as someone who accepted the new order, uh, kind of endorsed it by saying the new mass and so on. He did not. The most they got him to do was to offer a traditional mass facing the people, but he looked like he was going to, he looked horrible. He looked like he was in agony. And it wasn't because the stigmata. He died shortly thereafter. Um... So, in any case, uh, I think there is a good solid case that the Lucia, who was presented to the world, was not the real seer of Fatima. I thought it was kind of peculiar. The last time, I think it was John Paul II was going there, 
to see her. Well, no, the last time he was going to Fatima, as I recall, um, Sister Lucia, so so called, said that she needed to see him, and he he responded that he didn't have time to see her. And I thought, well, that's kind of peculiar, and uh, it's a small thing perhaps, but I, I think it is somewhat indicative of uh, the value of her input uh, in their eyes. But in any case, uh, with regard to Pius the Eleventh. Oh, by the way, uh, with regard to that, we had a question last time. Well, it was not so much a question, it was more of an observation from a lady who said that uh, the consecration of Russia did not appear in the message of Lucia until 1940, uh, after Lucia had befriended an Italian girl who was a mystic. And this Italian girl was the one, allegedly, who inspired this thought in Sister of Lucia's mind and that she tr kind of incorporated it into the message of Our Lady of Fatima. And I thought, you know, you know what I said last time, Tom, that this, this was the, the, most, the purest, idlest speculation. <clears throat> but the idea, uh, the, 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 the idea of consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart was not first mentioned in 1940. It was presented to Pope Pius XI in 1929. Uh, Lucia sent word that it was then that Russia had to be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in union with all the bishops of the world. Now, that's a matter of public record that Lucia did say that now is the time to make that act of consecration. So how this writer of last week, well, at least we read her uh, statement last week, could say that <clears throat> the, the notion didn't appear in the thought of such a Lucia until 1940, I don't know where, there's all kind of peculiar <coughs> speculation going on out there. I mean, some, some, some speculation is, uh, has a certain foundation, like the question of the identity of Sister Lucia. <coughs> uh, others seem to contradict not only accepted uh, uh, truth, but actually verifiable truth, you know. So I think people are trying to advance their own theories in place of, uh, you know, the truth in this case. So, but in any case, uh, with regard to Pope Pius XI, I, I cannot judge his responsibility. You know, this writer asks, if Pius XI had in fact consecrated Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary with all the bishops of the world, um, would that have forestalled everything? Uh, well, Our Lady said at Fatima, according to Sister Lucia, uh, when Our Lady appeared in 1917, that that this would forestall the evils. She foretold uh, uh, Russia spreading her errors throughout the world, causing wars and famine, persecutions, and a second war greater than the first. 1929 would have been the prime moment to make that consecration to, again, forestall all of those things. So one could argue that Pope Pius XI's failure to do so uh, actually was singularly responsible for all of these terrible things coming upon the world and pin the responsibility on him. Um, now, you know, these are things that, again, we can only speculate. Uh, and it's not our place to, to say, in the sense that we cannot judge him as God has judged him, um, why he did not make the consecration, I don't know, and I don't know that anyone alive does know. Perhaps he confided it to those close to him, 
1930. We know he did a number of things. In 1930, he made the Leonine prayers at the end of the of Lomas, the Hail Marys, Hail Holy Queen. He made those specifically for the conversion of Russia. We know the encyclicals he wrote against um, fascism, socialism, right? national socialism in Germany, and world socialism, the Bolsheviks in Russia. In 1937, he wrote these encyclicals. And we know these actions he took. We know but he did even before he became the Pope and on the streets of Warsaw, right? Uh, leading the people of uh, Poland, notably in Warsaw, in spiritual resistance to the impending Bolshevik victory over them. Um, that was in 1920. So the man was a man of courage. But we know he could make mistakes. I mentioned the mistake he made with the Cristeros how his Cardinal Secretary of State, of State, well, State I'm sorry, I, I don't think it was a Cardinal, Antonelli. I don't know, I'd have to check back to see if he was a Cardinal. But Antonelli was Pius XI's Secretary of State. And it, it appears that Antonelli convinced Pius XI that the Mexican government under Callez really wanted peace. And so uh, the authority of Pius XI was employed or used to, to um, actually order the Cristeros to lay down their arms and return home and stop uh, the resistance to the, well, the would-be Marxist state of Callez, right? Under President Callez. And of course, we know what happened to them, right? They were executed when they laid down their arms and appeared at the train stations with the writ of safe passage. They were taken out and they were gunned down. But Pius XI allegedly um, wept openly at what had happened there. I'm sure he took great responsibility for that. So he could be, he could be deceived. Right? Um, perhaps there was some deception involved in uh, the failure to, uh, to consecrate Russia with the bishops of the world. I don't know. And again, if there was... In fact, a deception, only God could judge his responsibility for that. I told you my theory already, that as Pope St. Pius X had condemned the errors of modernism and the modernists in 1907 with the encyclical Pascendi, and then over the following years of his papacy issued the Oath Against Modernism and uh, quite a number, goodly number of... Um, Again, follow-up condemnations of modernism. Um, there were sufficient number of modernists in the, in the clergy and even in the hierarchy in his day. In 1907, 1910, and by the time he died, you know, at the beginning of World War I, just before the beginning of World War I, that he already found the, the situation to be very formidable. And he felt he was compelled to speak out openly and denounce them to the world. This was in the first, century, uh, first decade of 1900s. So fast forward now to 1929, and we see what the modernists had been doing in the meantime. They'd been wheedling their way and worming their way into the hierarchy. So Papias XI certainly uh, had a, a terrible task if he was going to marshal the Episcopal uh, sees around the world all the bishops of the world to join together in a public consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. 
Personally, I, knowing well what we do know of the character of the man, I don't know what else would have prevented him from making that consecration, if he honestly believed that it was what heaven was asking for. But what he might have seen as a simple impossibility, a moral impossibility, to get the bishops of the world, including the modernists, who were probably rather prominent at that time, uh, in the Vatican and outside the Vatican, to join in that consecration. And uh, he might well have feared, uh, then when he saw the opposition that was there, I am sure he had opposition in mean, the Episcopus, <clears throat> he might have feared having a schism. I don't know, I'm just guessing, okay? So, perhaps he just felt that it's morally impossible for me to do this without creating an enormous rift, possibly a schism, and a great scandal. I don't know what else would have stopped him from doing it. Um, but again, as, as I mentioned, and as this person asks, could that have been Our Lady's plan to have exposed the modernists at that time and forestalled that danger to the church, not just the Second World War and famine and Russia spreading her errors throughout the world, but actually to expose the work of the modernists in the church and to have kind of a showdown with them? Could be. Um, but that's my own personal thinking, and I have not heard anyone else express that idea. So um, um, I'm not saying that because I'm, I'm thinking, well, see, I'm the only one who came up with that, and the fact that you're the only one who came up with it is not a very good sign. <laughs> so, um, but there are a lot more intelligent, more knowledgeable, and more brilliant and holier minds. But I just haven't uh, seen any of them express that that thought. Oh, there is there, there is there is that lingering wonderment in the Catholic people mm -hmm. as to why the consecration wasn't made under Pope Pius XI. Okay. Very good. Very interesting, Father. Um, a viewer asks uh, in this email, he says, uh, we are told to follow the true magisterium of the church. I want very much to follow this solemn truth, but where does it exist? Can you please lead me in the right direction, Father? The magisterial authority of the Church is to be primarily found in her Catholic tradition. The authority of the, of the, the Church's magisterium at any moment in time is there to safeguard Catholic tradition and to follow it. Our Lord said that the work of the Holy Ghost in the Church was to keep the track of the Church faithful to Christ, not to reveal new doctrines, but to bring to our minds all things whatsoever Jesus Christ himself had taught the Apostles. And so, um, this being the work of the Holy Ghost, it is, it is actually the work of tradition in the Church, uh, that is precisely the Holy Ghost's function here, to uh, carry on the Word of Christ in the Church and keep her faithful to the tradition of the Church going back to the very beginning. Modernism wants to um, basically scrap that whole, the whole idea, the whole content, except of that. And now it's personified by Francis, who says he's now actually discovering new truths that have not been known in the past. 
Uh, for example, that capital punishment is intrinsically evil. And the church was justifying it before, something intrinsically evil, because they didn't know any better. But the Holy the Spirit has now, has now inspired Francis to know something that nobody else knew before. No pope, no doctor of the church, no saint, no... Only Francis, no. And so, in that sense, he's um, uh, the new oracle of truth. He's the successor of Christ. And he's going to now reveal new truths uh, of morality that the, no one knew before. Uh, that's an abomination, totally contrary to the whole concept of Catholic tradition, concept of the very Catholic concept of the papacy itself. But this is what Francis has said of himself. So, um, if you want to follow Catholic tradition at any moment, if you want to f follow the magisterial authority of the Church, you must be following Catholic tradition. So you find Catholic tradition and you cling to it. And then you know that any true Pope would be doing the same thing and demanding that you do the same thing. So, you know, the Church has always been through times of crisis, times of trouble, times of persecution, Times when the lines of communication were cut, right? By secular authorities, by dictators, uh, by tyrants, by wars, you name it. And what the Catholic people did is what the Church always told them to do. What St. Paul said to do. Hold fast to the traditions you've received. Um, either by our preaching or by our writing, sacred scripture, right? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He says that even in the, when he brings up the subject of the Antichrist. What do we do in the times of the Antichrist? Hold fast to Catholic tradition that you've received, right? Coming down to you from the apostles. And uh, the point is, if you do that, you'll be Catholic, always. That's the, Catholic, that's the church's formula. So I would, uh, I would just say to this gentleman and anyone else on the subject, where do I find the magisterium of the church? In any given moment, it is where you find Catholic tradition. Um, there's the expression, where Peter is, there is the church, right? But you'd have to say, where Catholic tradition is, there's Peter. Because where Catholic tradition is, that is where the Holy Ghost is. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, next, Father, very interesting topic. I know a lot of our viewers have asked about this uh, question, or something very similar. Um, a... Uh, a very nice lady wrote in father and asked a couple questions about uh, about baptism and uh, she was told uh, at one point about the process of a supposed process of baptizing a baby when the baby is still in the womb um, she said she was told simply to sprinkle holy water on the womb and say the words of the baptism and so her first question is father would that be considered a valid baptism to baptize a child in the womb well, there is such a thing as uh, baptizing a child in utero mm -hmm. <clears throat> that involves actually injecting, right, through a, uh, a needle, syringe, right, the baptismal water. In this case, actually, it used sterilized water. And nowadays, we can follow on, the, uh, on, a, on a sonogram the very pre, uh, what's happening with the insertion of the needle and the placing of the needle and the, the flowing of the water. You, know, you can actually see it happening as the words of baptism are pronounced, the form. So that's, that's how baptisms can be performed. 
Um, and there are baptisms who are performed that way. So, but children who are at risk, even in the womb, and might not live to see the light of day. But um, there was once a doctor who, who gave a woman the advice, well, just take holy water, sprinkle it on your stomach, and say the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. And that would be baptizing the baby. And the woman asked the doctor, well, where did you get that? He said, well, I, the bishop, the diocese told me that that's what we're supposed to do now. <clears throat> that's not the sacrament of baptism. Um, the water has to actually come into contact with the body of the person being baptized. You can't just sprinkle it on um, the skin of the, of the woman on her stomach and say, I baptize you. She's not baptizing herself. And so you actually have to apply the, the matter and applying it. The, the remote matter of, the, of uh, the sacrament of baptism is just the baptismal water. <coughs> but the actual applying of the water to the body of the person, where the water is actually running over the body of the person, is the, uh, or flowing over the body of the person, that's the proximate matter, the sacrament. If that water does not flow over the body of the, of the one being baptized, there is no sacrament of baptism there. Okay. And if there is no sacrament of baptism, Father, what happens to this, this child in the womb if he passes away before birth? Well, you know, some things we have to, well, many things we have to leave to God. There are those who like to think, well, the intention was there. <clears throat> For the, the parents had the intention to baptize the baby, so that God can take that and supply for that. Well, admittedly, God can take that and supply for that. But the church herself has never said that. Uh, what we know is the importance of the sacrament of baptism, uh, that the only thing that can possibly supply for that, as the Council of Trent Catechism tells us, if the baptism of adults is if an adult dies as a catechumen without being able to receive the sacrament, and through no fault of his own, uh, he dies without having received that. So he's preparing to receive it. The church says that his repentance for his sins, his faith, okay, his repentance for his sins, will, uh, and his intention to receive the sacrament will avail him. I mean, it uses, it will avail him to grace and justification. That's what the Catechism of the Council of Trent, with regard to the baptism of adults, says. Uh, one can check that out. One can go back to the 1566 edition, the very first edition of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, issued by Pope St. Pius V himself, and look at that and see that in Latin, beautifully expressed, powerfully, clearly expressed. So one cannot argue that that's an interpolation or an invention of the modernists who distorted the word later. Uh, this is the original edition of 1566, St. Pius V was the one who issued that. <clears throat> so, uh, but, a, but a child in the womb cannot have such, right? In fact, uh, it is precisely the sacrament of baptism that instills the theological virtues of faith and hope and charity in the soul of the child. So baptism is the means of giving those virtues to the soul of the child, even before the child can employ them, can operate with them, can make those virtues active, right? They are latent within the soul by virtue of baptism. And without the baptism, without a valid baptism, they, they, they cannot happen. They do not happen. 
so the church's teaching is that without, without that baptism, the grace of baptism, that uh, the child will go to limbo. And um, there are those who have a difficult time with that. I can understand why. I can understand why very well. That's a, engenders a certain sadness, of course. But the fact is, one cannot sacrifice the teaching of the church and the value of the sacrament of baptism in order to adjust it to uh, meet all of our desires. You know? <laughs> it is what Christ himself made it to be. And, um, you know, those who you know, have, have uh, lost children this way um, should not really consider them lost in the sense that uh, the church's theology tells us. Going back to the earliest centuries, again, this doctrine of the limbo infancia, the limbo of the infants, uh, that is a place of natural happiness. One might, might even liken it to, in a sense, the Garden of Eden, you know. And uh, although theologically, you know, it can be discussed, I think uh, there are certain characteristics there. And that those who are there are, have a happiness, they have a natural happiness, and uh, have a natural knowledge of God, their Creator. Uh, they do not have the supernatural beatific vision of God, of course, because that is something supernatural. It can only come by sanctifying grace. But the, the souls of those who were there are very thankful that they are there. They are glad that they exist. They appreciate the fact that they've been given the benefit of existing and knowing happiness and knowing their creator by a natural knowledge. And um, there are those who would say, well, it would have been better if uh, this child would not have come into the world, if the child could not have then you know, gone to heaven. And uh, I think they're making a big mistake, because I think that if one were to interview the children, the souls of the little ones who died and went to limbo, they're not little ones anymore, because their intellects, are free from the prohibitions of the you know limitations of matter right now that they would actually uh, contradict them I think that, that they would all say no we're we're thankful to God that we are here we're thankful to God that we're born uh, we are not suffering in the fires of hell um, and we have a certain knowledge of God I think uh, every now and then uh, people raise the question well can I visit my little ones my my children, right? Mm -hmm. And this um, dear lady might have written the same thing. And I've never heard anything that would prevent um, you know, a soul from heaven visiting. Now one might allege this, one might say, well there's a parable of the rich man and the poor man and the rich man went to hell was tormented in the flames and wanted uh, Lazarus, the poor man, who went to Abraham's bosom to dip his finger into a little bit of water and just touch the rich man's tongue to give him some relief from the terrible devouring flames. And uh, Abraham said, there is an abyss between us and they cannot cross. No one can get to you from here. Right? So one might argue that that means that a soul from heaven cannot even go to limbo. But I think they'd be hard-pressed to make a case from that, and that alone, no. Um, so I, I don't know that any theologian um, 
and the theologians have accepted the doctrine of the limbo of infants for centuries and centuries now. I don't know of anyone. Uh, I'd like to check with Cornelius Salapide, though, on his commentary <clears throat> as to uh, what he has to say on that question, if he does address it. Um, if the parents of children who died without baptism and went to limbo could actually <clears throat> be visited by them, if they would have the, the ability to uh, even reveal themselves to them as their parents mm -hmm. <clears throat> brought them into existence. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's, it's a, these are theological questions that, to my knowledge, the church has not definitively answered, but yeah. doesn't forbid discussion of either. Okay. Very interesting. Father, thank you for that. Uh, well, Father, if we could spend the last part of the program uh, just on a, a couple uh, other items that we wanted to address. I guess first we uh, we see the war between Ukraine and Russia continuing uh, yeah. to carry on and develop over there. Is there any kind of Catholic update that you could provide for us in that situation, Father? <clears throat> well, it was provoked. Uh, it was provoked by us. Okay. When I say by us, I mean by the Western countries, notably the United States of America. I think there's no, no doubt about that, yeah. <clears throat> that we provoked this, and there were reasons of a new world order that would be served by this. <clears throat> and uh, there's no doubt about it that it is being perpetuated by the influence of Washington. And uh, Western countries are, are perpetuating this, this, this conflict here. At the great expense of uh, the people of Russia, at the great expense of the people of Ukraine. Uh, there are those who make the case that this does, in fact, serve the Great Reset, and, uh, the reordering of uh, the world's economy. I believe it's true. You know, we're being continually told the party line that uh, Putin's responsible for the high gas prices, and Putin's responsible for the food shortage, and Putin's responsible for this and the other thing. But I think people have gotten tired of even hearing it, let alone believing it. <clears throat> I think they realize that uh, the powers that be in Washington are part of this orchestra that are making this happen. And uh, Putin, uh, Zelensky, and the rest of them, uh, I think they're all uh, puppets acting out their parts in this. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're all bad actors, so to speak, you know. But one thing's for sure, I mean, it is wreaking havoc uh, with the life of virtually everybody in the West now, too. And driving inflation and um, just, I would say, adding to it, you know, after all of these so-called stimulus packages pouring out billions, trillions of dollars, billions of those going, just disappearing, um, being stolen, you know, by what interests you can imagine. Um, so the money tap is flowing, and I think this is just now trying to um, apply too little, too late of a justification for the inflation that they've caused. Of course, it's it all goes back to this COVID conspiracy that they have. Uh, but it, enough of that. I mean, we've heard half of that already. <laughs> they want to perpetuate that as long as they can still convince one single person, you know, uh, to justify. Uh, getting vaccinated or getting masked or whatever. As long as there's anybody left sitting in that audience, they're going to keep talking, right? You've seen the congressional 
not uh, you know the halls of Congress where you have the congressman speaking to an empty <laughs> gallery or an empty uh, you know no one they're listening to him, but it's going into the congressional record. <clears throat> as long as they've got somebody sitting there, even the janitor, they'll, they'll just keep talking. <clears throat> the same message and. Um, um, and the, the uh, mainstream media can be relied upon to just echo and echo and echo you know, the deceit. So I think that's what's going on in the Ukraine right now. And, uh, you know, your heart goes out to the people who are just being victimized and used uh, for this great reset. But the fact is that we're all, we're all part of that. We're all, we're all going to be used. We're all part of their plan in one way or another. It's the people in Ukraine and Russia today, and we're next. You know, it's going to get to us. This tidal wave is going to carry over here too. Um, so, you know, as far as the shortages that they've been warning against, um, uh, I think they're coming. I think they're very real, and I think, uh, as I mentioned in sermons, the famine that happened in Egypt when Joseph <coughs> warned Pharaoh of the meaning of his dream. And, uh, put aside food, right? God used that in order to accomplish his great purpose. And um, we also have um, famines that have occurred, occurred in history, and God uses them all uh, for chastisement. Our Lady said at Fatima there would be famines because of sin. So we have to expect that these things are coming. When Hillary Clinton warned her friends, as it became public uh, some years ago, Start stockpiling food because there's going to be a famine. We have to believe that she wasn't consulting her, you know, her tea leaves or, uh, you know, uh, what, uh, intestines from a, you know, a, a, you know, a, an animal immolated. You know, yeah. That she knew what the plan was. Okay, and uh, this was oh, several years ago already. So all, all the, this is the drumbeat now. So we have to do the prudent thing and, and prepare. But the most important thing we have to do is not to offend God. We have to do what Our Lady said at Fatima was the root cause of all of these evils. And that is mankind offending God. We have to return to resume, resume following the, the Ten Commandments. We need fear of the Lord to move us to obey the commandments of God. Be faithful to Him. For us, traditional Catholics, we have to proclaim Christ as our King. And we have to live such that he really is. Otherwise, we will just uh, not bring honor to our Lord, but appropriate upon ourselves as hypocrites. So we have to not proclaim our Lord's kingship, we have to live it. Being faithful. But um, anyway, we'll, we'll see how long they need to perpetuate this to serve their purpose. Now they're talking digital currency, of course. In other words, they, they take these instances and they basically use them as excuses for, you know, a dozen of things, hundreds of things that they want to do. Uh, you name it. You know, anything that happens, they say, oh, suddenly we have to do this now. Okay? So now we've got to get everybody vaccinated and get a universal enrollment system so you all have some kind of a digital identification. Okay? For what? <laughs> you know? Um, they will just take any pretext they can and there aren't that many people, evidently, who can really see through the deceit and realize 
that these people are just using this as a pretext to do whatever they want to do. Uh, you've heard of Yuval, Yuval Harari, right? Yes, and he's a great advisor to these people, appearing at the uh, World Economic Forum conferences year after year and talking about we have to digitize human beings. We have to basically take them over and we have to uh, uh, essentially change the form of life. Change the very, what, what it is to be human. This is their, there's their objective. Who do they think they are? <clears throat> they don't need permission to do this. They can do it, and so they have a right to do it. To everyone. You, and to me, and your children. Everyone. Just because they want to do this. Because they think it's a good idea. Every malevolent, satanic dictator who's ever imposed, tried to impose his will on humanity has had the same approach. Right? Had the same idea. <clears throat> and, um, again... It's, uh, it's very evil, it's very it's de devilish, it's, it's hellish, and that's what they create by doing this. But listen to Harari, H-A-R-A-R-I, and listen to what he's saying, and you'll see this is actually the plan they have for you, and me, and everyone else. <clears throat> and uh, human life means nothing to them, because they intend to supersede it. In fact, human life as it is, your life and mine, they look upon with a certain contempt, and uh, even a certain just malicious, um, even hatred. Um, <clears throat> sort of the way that the, the devils themselves. I mean, the, the fallen angels remain angels. And they have the power of fallen angels. And they, they look upon, as Lucifer himself looked upon us, um, when he was told that as the greatest of the archangels, he would be at our service. And he saw us to be a vastly informer, just inferior form of existence. Not just form of life, but a vastly inferior form of existence to his own. And he was offended by the idea that he should in any way be at the service of such crummy characters as ourselves. I mean, we're talking even about Adam and Eve. We're talking about people in the perfection of human nature and the state of grace as it, as it came to be. But... Uh, as God created them. <clears throat> but Lucifer looked upon them as so, so, just, well, what should I say, uh, so miserably inferior to himself. <clears throat> he just could not bring himself to do it. Um, you know, there was a lady who wrote in some time ago about insects being demonically ugly and so on. Well, how do you think we looked in the eyes of Lucifer back then? I mean, you know, the, the, he must have looked at us the way we look at these insects right now, in a sense, as just being very, very... Um, almost de detestable <laughs> life forms. And um, so he would not submit. Well, the, the people who are driving this here on Earth, who want to uh, meld together, as uh, Schwab says, your <clears throat> biological identity with your physical identity and meld them together with your digital identity, yes, they're going to give you a digital identity, whether you want one or not, they're going to make you have one, right? Or you are going to have to be liquidated. In fact, Harari has come out and even said, <clears throat> what are we going to do with the people whom we can't digitize? Do we have to keep them entertained? I mean, they're useless. What do we do with them? Um, they basically have the idea that, well, that they eventually they'll have to just go the way of the Neanderthal. So we'll have to be extinct. <clears throat> we'll have to be replaced by the creations of Klaus Schwab. 
and Yuval Harari. Okay, they'll create the new humanity, um, new digital uh, Homo digitalis. Interesting Homo digitalis there, because we talk about digitalis as being a poison, right? Digitalis is a new poison. So they've actually coined the term somewhere along the line, Homo digitalis, digital man. That's what they want to create, poison man. Well, how appropriate is that, right? Look it up, Homo digitalis. The idea is not original with me, okay? But in any case, uh, this is where they want to go. They have contemporary human life as it is. They think nothing of um, bringing down buildings with thousands of people being crushed to death in the buildings if it serves their purpose. They think they're serving a new humanity that they are they're creating. They think nothing of, of starting wars. They think nothing of millions of people um, attacking each other and killing each other. They think nothing of uh, pandemics, real or imagined. <coughs> They think nothing of starvation. It's all serving part of their plan because their plan is to create a new man, a digitalized man whom they create in their own image likeness. So they want to be God. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar. So look what's happening in Shanghai right now. Right? Uh, people are, uh, 26 million people in Shanghai are confined to quarters. They are not allowed to leave for any reason. They can't get food. And food is not being delivered to them. They're starving to death in their own, within the walls of their own little apartments. They're coming to the windows, screaming out loud, they're starving to death, and no one answers. No one cares. They're, unfortunately, committing suicide by the hundreds, if not thousands, hanging themselves, or uh, jumping out of the buildings of high-rises, just falling, jumping off the top of buildings, leaping off their balconies. Uh, it's uh, unfortunately, well, uh, all too reminiscent of what happened with the World Trade Center. Although the buildings aren't burning down, uh, but still people are, are left to starve, and this is what they're doing. They're being driven to madness. Tragic? Yes. Their pets are being taken from them. If, they're, uh, if they are uh, tested <clears throat> positing, uh, testing positive with COVID, their pets are being taken away out into the streets and beaten to death out in the streets. <clears throat> and then hold away in bags. If they test positive, their children are being taken away. Um, if the adults test positive, the children are being taken away. If the children are take, testing positive, they're being taken away, either way. And uh, they're being taken away to where? I don't know, camps, somewhere. Um, and the vast majority of these people are asymptomatic. They're not showing any symptoms of these. They're just testing positive. Probably with this very same PCR test. China has developed its own vaccine, but they will allow only their vaccine to be used on their own people. And I think it's precisely to exterminate the excess population. This is all very Malthusian. You know what, who Malthus was, right? Oh, look up the British so-called philosopher who uh, really originated the idea of, well, the modern idea of population control. Um, when uh, Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas Carol uh, talks about the uh, uh, the useless mouths, let's say, you know, <clears throat> talks about those more wandering the streets and not being taken care of, talks about, well, are there no workhouses, he says, well, let them go there, let them be put to work in the workhouses. He says, and if they die, uh, then that just reduces the excess population. 
He was just expressing the ideas of uh, Malthus uh, of, of his day. Look it up. Most people, I think, would uh, be somewhat familiar with the idea. And uh, those who aren't would find it rather interesting that these concepts have been floating around for quite some time now. They just have found a welcome home in the minds of these um, demonic uh, resetters, right? So, uh, in any case, Tom, these are things that are happening right now. <clears throat> they're happening to real people right now. Whether they're happening here on the other side of the world, they're tragic, and we need to pray for all these, these poor people. We are praying the prayer to St. Joseph, the litany to St. Joseph for the good people of Canada, trying to resist the infantile, poor isle tyrant there. Um, we should also be praying for the people of Cuba and for the people of Mexico too. As one of our readers just our viewers asked, what do we pray for them? Well, there's a, there are prayers to Our Lady of Guadalupe that one can and should be praying for the peoples of Mexico and Cuba, I believe. Um, in fact, there's a beautiful litany for private recitation for a uh, litany of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And there's a novena, well, more than one, novenas to Our Lady of Guadalupe that one would pray for Mexico. <clears throat> and also, um, we should be praying for the, for the courageous people of Cuba who um, have been living under the heel of communism since 1960, you know, even before, before that. So um, we should pray that they not lose hope, that they not lose faith in our Lord, because he's the only one who can save them, ultimately. So we, uh, we have a lot to pray for. But the, the most important thing we have to do is, number one, do not sin, be faithful to God. Number two, then, because of that same fidelity to God, make reparation for the sins that the world is committing and asking God's mercy, trying to draw God's mercy here upon us. Evidently, there are some very powerful prayers being offered right now. I'm sure that the traditional masses offered by real traditional priests are very powerful in uh, as the restrainer holding back the full brunt of God's wrath on the one hand and the just the malice of hell on the other, you know. But um, in any case, Our Lady has given us the formula for uh, you know the difference between um, salvation and and destruction. And the formula necessarily involves fidelity to the Sacred Heart of Jesus through her Immaculate Heart. We need to consecrate ourselves to her Immaculate Heart. So we, uh, I ask you to please pray for all of these good people and uh, remember them at the altar each day, asking God to have mercy on them as we ask Him to have mercy on us too. Amen. Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time and everything that you do. Well done. That's mutual. Thank you. Yeah, thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.